the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Situation Report today. Glad to have you joining us. This is the show where we do our very best to bring you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stoliker. I am your host today. Glad to have you with me. As we talk about an ever-changing culture, there is a part of our culture, if it is a part of our culture, (laughs) that is ever-changing. That part that I am referring to are the words that we use. Have you noticed that the words we use are constantly being redefined? This is something that many of us don't recognize. It happens over time, but it happens so slowly that we don't really put our finger on it. That words have meaning, we know that, but that the meanings change, we don't always connect with. And yet here we are. We're at a moment in time where words are intentionally being redefined so that in a strange kind of way, we can be redirected. We know that words change, that meanings change, that definitions change over time. In fact, I've got a couple of articles today I want to share with you, but we are going somewhere, so stick with me. We begin with this article from Seasoft International. Uh, Seasoft International is a translation, localization, and global communication service. So this is what they talk about. They deal with communication. Uh, Not too long ago, a blog was written by Seasoft on the change of words, semantic change how words evolve over time. Now, if this isn't an exciting conversation to you, uh, stick with me. This is a very important conversation. But beginning here, semantic change, how words evolve over time. The development of languages can lead to a change in meanings of words, and in historical linguistics, this phenomenon is known as semantic change. That's the first sentence of this article. Continuing to read, the meaning of a word can either be slightly altered or... It can evolve greatly. While this can cause confusion and misunderstanding, it is also seen as a positive step forward in the growth and adaptation of languages. In a modern world where businesses thrive on effective communication and creative marketing campaigns, it is important to have not only clarity of message, but also an understanding of how others interpret words. Now, this is a great article, and I won't read all of this to you. But they jump into this by giving an example of a couple words. I'm going to go down to the third paragraph. This is a great example. On the contrary, the word nice, that word nice in quotation marks here, nice, derived from Latin, nesius, I guess that's how it's said, meaning ignorant, and began life in the 14th century as a term for silly. So they're giving an example of the evolving change of words, and they're using the word nice, we know this word, But they say here that when it began in the 14th century, it was a word that meant ignorant or silly. Now, we don't use it that way anymore. The article continues. From there, it embraced many negative qualities, such as wantonness, extravagance, and cowardice. It is not until the Middle Ages that the word took on the attributes of shyness and reserve. The 18th century and its fascination with admirable qualities 
is what brought on the more positively charged meanings of nice, with the values of respectability and virtue taking over. These positive associations remain until today, and the word usually being used as a synonym synonym of pleasant. Now, that's a great overview. This is a great article just talking about how words change. And that's very important for us to begin this conversation. Remember, we're going somewhere. But we begin there. Language has changed over time. Uh, If, in fact, you look at a book book (laughs) written in English uh, back in the 1600s, English words not only use letters that look different than they do today, but words that have a very different meaning. In fact, if you read a manuscript from the 1600s, unless you know what that means, you've learned what that means, you've been educated, you won't have any idea what's being spoken of. Uh, Words change, and it's okay if words change. Certainly, they should. Another article here is called The Rise and Fall of Rationality and Language, and this is actually a research study that was done on how we, as those who use English, who speak English, have changed from interpreting words literally to interpreting words from an emotional standpoint. As you know, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop by simply creating the best pillow. Now Mike has done it again by introducing his My Slippers. For a limited time, you will save $90 on a pair of My Slippers. This blowout sale of the year won't last, so order now. Mike has taken two years to develop the My Slippers, and they are designed to wear both indoor and out all day long. Made with MyPillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue, they are also made with quality leather suede. Call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and use promo code SITREP. This offer will not last long, so order now with promo code SITREP at MyPillow.com. This study took books written from 1850 through 2019, and ran them through a computer program to determine the use of words. Not even the meaning of words, the definition of words, but how words were used. I want to read you the abstract of this study. It's a very long study. Um, It's incredible. But but here's the abstract. The surge of post-truth political argumentation suggests that we are living in a special historical period when it comes to the balance between emotion and reasoning. Now, that's really important. I'm stepping back here. It calls this the post-truth political argumentation. Something that I have personally struggled with over the last couple of years, and maybe you have as well, is trying to understand what we're being told. It does not seem like it was that long ago, at least for me. When I would read something, and I would take it as being pretty literal, you can tell when figurative language is used, or uh, there's a different meaning implied. I'm well-versed in sarcasm. I love sarcasm. Uh, but it's, it's very apparent that that's what's happening. It seems that now, when we read something or we're told something, there is a conversation being had, words are being used, but they mean something entirely different than what most of us would understand. Uh, that is what this study calls post-truth, this, this time that we're living in. Uh, I'm going to continue reading here. It picks up. It says, To explore if this is indeed the case, that we're living in a post-truth time of political argumentation, we analyze language in millions of books covering the period from 1850 to 2019. That's a long time. Represented in Google Ngram data. 
we show that the use of words associated with rationality, such as determine and conclusion, rose systematically after 1850, while words related to human experience, such as feel and believe, declined. Very important. Words taken literally, using words like rationality, determine, conclusion, they increased, and words connected to feeling decreased. This pattern reversed over the past decades, paralleled by a shift from a collectivist to an individualistic focus as reflected, among other things, by the ratio of singular to plural pronouns such as I, we, and he, they. Interpreting this synchronous sea change in book language remains challenging. However, as we show, the nature of this reversal occurs in fiction as well as nonfiction. Moreover, the pattern of change in the ratio between sentiment and rationality, uh, rash, rationality flag words since 1850 also occurs in New York Times articles, suggesting that it is not an artifact of the book corpora we analyzed. Finally, we show that word trends in books parallel trends in corresponding Google search terms, supporting the idea that changes in book language do in part reflect changes in interest. All in all, our results suggest that over the past decades, there has been a marked shift in public interest from the collective to the individual and from rationality toward emotion. That last sentence there is so important. All in all, and remember, they're taking books from 1850 through 2019. They're having software, computer software, analyze words, and this is their conclusion. All in all, our results suggest that over the past decades, there has been a marked shift in public interest from the collective to the individual, and from reality toward emotion. This is so important and so significant. Again, this is our starting point for our conversation today. We're going to go somewhere significant and important. It says here that what we have learned over the course of 150 years of data is that we are much more concerned with the individual and how we feel than we are with rationality and truth. Why does this matter? It matters because as we communicate, there was a point in time not that long ago where we cared about the words that were being used because individual words have definitions. As we've already examined, definitions of words, the meaning of words, will change over time, but it typically happens over a long period of time, not from one day to the next, not from one week to the next, not from, in some cases, one political administration to the next. <laughs> that there is an evolution of word change so that we can tag along. We can know what's being communicated when words are being used. Words are very important. Words form the basis for our understanding in relationships, for understanding in terms of policy, whether it's coming down from us or being understood by us. Words form the foundation and the basis for everything we know and everything that we believe. If you don't agree with that, go to a country where you don't speak the language and try to get around for a day or two. <laughs> Words and meaning are very, very powerful. And yet what we've seen over a period of time is that we're more concerned, not in the literal definition of words, what they mean, but how those words make us feel. On this show, we often talk about how culture is changing, 
how culture is shifting. One major shift of culture is from what we know to be factually accurate to how people feel about what is being said or done. How does this make you feel? We're becoming far less concerned about whether or not something is true, whether or not something is real, than we are about how things make us feel. We've talked often on this show about the, uh, the argument, the war, if you will, the cultural war around gender. Why is this such a significant moment? Well, because we've taken truth and set it aside for how people who are confused about things like gender feel. And that all comes back to a redefinition of words. Another article I'm going to read you is written by uh, Ralph Ruiz. Uh, fascinating. We sometimes think that what we're dealing with now is new. It's not new. Uh, here's the question he poses at the beginning of this article. Again, this is Ralph Ruiz. He says, what is communist semantics? Now, that word communist is being thrown around a lot today, too, right? Uh, the right is calling the left communist. The left is calling the right communist. If you're not a Nazi, you're probably a communist. That's the world we're living in right now. Uh, but uh, Ralph is someone who writes this article from a place of experience, having lived and grown up in Cuba. He's seen communism firsthand. He understands how it works. He writes this article. He asks this question. What is communist semantics? He defines it. Communist semantics is the art of political sophism applied in direct and indirect propaganda with a twofold intention. That word sophism, I had to go look it up because I'm not a smart guy. Uh, it, it means rhetoric. These are words that are used to manipulate people's thoughts and actions. Communist semantics is the art of political sophism applied in direct and indirect propaganda with a twofold intention. Number one, to automatically invalidate the arguments of the enemy on any subject. Don't miss that. Communist semantics, that is, communism as a party or an ideology, a philosophy, changing words to do what? Automatically invalidate the arguments of the enemy on any subject. This is rhetoric. This is argument. This is me using words that will invalidate what you're saying. Don't miss that. Here's the second thing. To automatically validate Marxist sophism into a valid argument without having to prove it valid. <laughs> That's great. I love this. Why? Because this is what everyone is doing right now. If you've been on social media lately, this is what's happening to automatically validate Marxist sophism into a valid argument without having to prove it valid. You could take out the phrase, if you don't like it, Marxist sophism. That's, this is not specifically about communism or Marxism. But the idea of Marxist semantics changing words to manipulate people and ideas serves two purposes. One is to invalidate the arguments of others, and then to make an argument valid even though you don't have the evidence to prove that it's valid. This is what's happening in our culture. This is people saying it's true because we say it's true. Or it's true because enough people will go along with it being true. Or it's true because to say otherwise makes people feel bad. That's exactly what is taken from the Marxist playbook. This communist semantics. Changing words to control not only people, but to control narratives. For instance, he gives, as he writes this article, 
El Nuevo Herald just published an article on the Colombian guerrillas using children in their dirty warfare, something that has been happening for quite a while. And the Miami Herald in English turns a blind eye on it because the values of the victims have been eroded by bias and journalism too, I should add. So there's some commentary going on there. He says, one word or short phrase is enough to distill venom, sometimes intentionally, sometimes on purpose. A couple of days ago at 6.15, an MSNBC female spokesperson said, President Bush, this is an old article, a war against what he called terrorism, that what he called carried a bottle of venom. How was it that communists won this war of words for decades, intellectuals from every country on earth, picked among those with good intentions but questionable training and logic, were brought to the Soviet Union or to other satellite country to study a number of subjects where this linguistic policy was applied? So the example is given. President Bush at the time makes a statement. It's dismissed as something that foments terrorism. It's venom. That is then received by the hearers, those who have been taught to receive by the state what's being said. And what was said, even though it's true, because of how it was changed, semantic alteration, it becomes something very different. And he, in this article, says these techniques are used by people with questionable training and logic. They can't understand how things fit together. And it was taught by either the Soviet Union at the time or a satellite country who understands and then teaches how these linguistic policies should be applied. He goes on a lengthy article where he breaks down uh, piece after piece, instance after instance, example after example of how communism largely exists because of their understanding of how and their effectiveness in Altering the Meanings of Words. This is an older article. We go back a little ways to understand that this is not something that's simply happening today, but this has always happened. This is how powerful regimes have manipulated people to get them to do what they want them to do. We could go back, since nowadays it seems like you're either a communist or you're a Nazi, we could go back and understand that in the 30s, We look back, how in the world could the people of Germany be so manipulated to do the things that were done, those atrocities that took place? Manipulation of words. Taking pieces of truth and twisting them, manipulating them, applying them to an entire group of people. Making that group of people responsible for something that happened 10, 20, and 30 years prior to that. And manipulating a population into taking actions that otherwise they would never take. Semantic manipulation. We go to another article. This is from the Federalist. How the left's war on words manipulates your mind. Now, we've been working from some older articles, some older studies to this one. This is written or was written in 2018 uh, by Benjamin Durker. Um, And in 2018, the question is asked, how how the left's war on words manipulates your minds from the Federalist. And I want to give you what he says here, beginning in the first paragraph. Whether we are communicating something simple, like a restaurant order, or something complex, like a tax code, we expect others to understand. Language provides an avenue to express shared meaning so humans can relate to one another. On college campuses, social media, and in the courts, this shared meaning is being destroyed. Through linguistic activism, 
Leftists have begun a full-scale war on language, playing by their own set of constantly shifting rules. I'm going to stop there. A little commentary. <laughs> if you're following along, we started by saying words change, meanings change, definitions change. That's the natural evolution of language. We get that. But typically, they change in response to how they're being used, and they change gradually over time. That happens. It can be seen. It can be tracked. We're all queuing into it. The populace understands a common definition of words, even though those words have changed over time. We know what's being said. We then moved on and understood that over time, particularly in the last couple of decades, emotion has preempted literal interpretation of words. This is significant. How I feel about what's being said is becoming more important to me than what's actually being said. I want to feel good about it, even if it doesn't exactly mean what you're suggesting it means. Make me feel good about it. We understand, as we've continued this conversation, uh, that in philosophical tyranny, like that of the Communist Party and the Communist regime, has largely been perpetrated on populations by manipulating words. This is a tool that's been used. The semantic manipulation. Not the natural evolution of words, the natural change of words over time, but intentionally altering the meanings of words, divorcing it from intellect and reason, so that we can arrive at what is probably not a literal or actual factual conclusion. But it's necessary. Here, the article continues, this article in The Federalist, uh, by explaining that linguistic activism, through linguistic activism, leftists have become, begun a full-scale war on language. Why? Because of what we saw in communism, what we see today even in communism, what we saw in Nazism and fascism, and throughout, I would imagine, human history, manipulating words, altering words, so they mean what we want them to mean, and now we can make people feel how we want them to feel, even if the truth is lost. There's a war on language. Remember, this was written in 2018. A lot's happened since 2018, but I'll continue reading. I don't know when it started or with what word, but the modern American lexicon is changing faster than society can keep up. Any 20th century liberal who walked onto a college campus today would be more confused than the town drunk from Babel straggling into... Uh, town the morning after a bender. Words can now literally be defined with their antonym. We are a hair's width and an ounce of stupidity away from war is peace, freedom is slavery. Um, taken from Animal Farm, of course. If you haven't read that book, you need to read it. It's amazing. Uh, but just changing words, changing what's said, changing what we mean. Word games take many forms and honest people must call it out. At Prager University, Michael Knowles exposes this tactic and how it affects the culture. Underlying each tactic uh, is misuse of words. This isn't innocent linguistic drift or slang. It is a conscious effort to reshape society. I'm going to jump down. What do these tactics look like? It starts with misusing words or defining them based on circumstance rather than objective meaning. The entire purpose of defined language is to hold constant meaning so others can understand. Situational use starts to condition how people feel about words, building up a new connotation. Remember that we've seen this shift take place uh, from the collective to the individual, from literalism in writing to emotionalism, how I feel about what's being said. That's the tactic. The classic example is the word liberal. 
um, continuing to read here, which the far left co-opted. It was adopted because of its positive connotation and used as a cover for imposing greater leftist control under the guise of liberty. In reality, there is nothing liberal about failing to protect life, burdening individuals with regulations and taxes, or forcing individuals to provide services to others. This is no accidental misnomer, but strategic messaging to influence people. Who doesn't want to support a policy that is progressive, pro-choice, or affordable? And these words, as you know, uh, really mean the opposite of progressive, pro-choice, or affordable. This is a great definition or a great article um, really working through this concept. I'll read the last paragraph of this section. New words do not harm discourse unless they are thrust upon people and enforced through speech codes. Controlling how people speak is the implicit goal of this movement, which combined with anti-hate speech activism seeks to empower the left as the arbiters of morality and to punish those who wrongfully use language, ironically achieved by abusing language themselves. This article continues on, again, how the left's war on my uh, on words manipulates your mind on the Federalist, May of 2018. And we can see this happening. This article in the Federalist calls this out. Uh, this is happening intentionally to make us feel different about what's being said so that we can manipulate policy. We can manipulate how people think. We can control what words are used. Yesterday, <laughs> the Federalist published another article. This is where we've been going. Here it is, the title of this article found on the economics page of the Federalist. Um, the title is this, Recession? Question mark. No problem. Just pretend it doesn't exist. This is where we end up. Now, we've given examples that are uh, decades old. But this is where we are in the United States. We look at communism, we look at Nazism, we look at fascism, we go back 100 years, 150 years, we go back to some atrocities where words were manipulated to bring people to an expected end. That happens there. It's happening here. Let me get, begin reading this article, written yesterday. In 2009, mired in the slowest recovery in American history, the Obama administration decided to dispense with antiquated economic metrics and cook, cook up a new, non-falsifiable number that would better accommodate the president. And so... We were introduced to jobs saved and created. And I'm sure a lot of you remember that phrase. Every month, an administration economist under the veneer of expertise would trot out this fake statistic, one that had never uh, been used by the Labor Department or Treasury Department or the Bureau of Labor Statistics or anyone else. Uh, he, he goes on and talks about this. And this is super interesting. <laughs> um, I would point out that although the example given here is of President Obama, we're going to talk about President Biden. This is a tool used by anyone who wants to manipulate folks, left, right, or center. The article goes on here, though. It says, get ready for a very dumb debate over the word recession. So it starts off by saying there's a precedent for this. I would say the precedent goes back much further. He says, get ready for a dumb debate over the word recession. It's true. There's no scientific definition for a recession because economics isn't an exact science. Yet for decades, the media, government, economic textbooks, and dictionaries have all, more or less, defined a recession as two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But now, with the prospects of this week's GDP report being in the red, the Atlanta Fed estimates GDP will uh, contract 1.6 contract 1.6%. The administration and media are engaged 
and a pedantic discussion over the real meaning of a recession. It's crazy, right? Crazy. <laughs> but here we are. Uh, let's get back into it. What is a recession? The White House Council of Economic Advisors ponders. While some maintain that two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. It isn't? It is true that on rare occasions, as the National Bureau of Economic Research did in the early 90s, experts will declare a recession when there are non-consecutive quarters of negative growth. So uh, they don't wait for two consecutive quarters. Based on other criteria, they say we're in a recession. But not once has the media, I'm continuing to read, covered two consecutive quarters of contraction as anything but a recession. Every fresh report of Kinsey and economic failure during the Obama years was treated as unexpected. When the same policy fails during the Biden years, the media depicts our sputtering economy as weird and unpredictable. <laughs> Is it? This week, we're going to see a new consumer confidence number. It will likely be bad. Interest rates will likely rise, as will inflation, and perhaps the best predictor of a recession, the yield curve inversion, is already with us. It's not weird. I'm going to read this last paragraph. The administration argues we aren't technically in a recession because of the low unemployment rate, but simply because the Biden administration says we're experiencing historic job growth doesn't mean we have to play along. Indeed, the private sector hasn't even regained the job's loss due to the man-made downturn that was caused by needless government-compelled COVID shutdowns. The Chamber of Commerce says 3.25 million fewer Americans are working today than were in February of 2020. In 2019, presidential candidate Joe Biden argued the economy was teetering on recession when there were zero quarters of negative growth and the unemployment rate was at 3.7%. Today, it's at 3.6%. I'm not going to continue reading this article but read it for yourself. You'll find it from July 25th. That's just a couple of days ago as this uh, podcast comes out from the Federalist called Recession No Problem. Just pretend it doesn't exist. And the subtitle is They Think You're Stupid. Here's the point. We've seen this happen. We have historical precedent for this happening. We see how um, murderous... <laughs> Regimes, over time, have used semantic manipulation to get populations to do what they never would have done otherwise, resulting in the loss of millions and millions, tens of millions of lives. We can go back historically, running uh, works of fiction and nonfiction through software programs that analyze words, and we can see that since the 1850s, there has been a marked shift from the collective, that's all of us, to the individual. How I feel becomes more important than what is true. Now, we can certainly argue that words change, and words do change. The meanings of those words change. But it happens gradually. It's evolution. It happens gradually, and the population understands that change, so they know what's being said. We could look to other times and say, those people were manipulated by the words of their leaders. We would never be that or do that. And yet, even this week, we see that our political administration is changing in front of us, not even pretending it's not happening. The agreed-upon definition of words so that their job failures won't be called out as job failures. 
so much more could be said on this, but I want to bring all of this together by explaining why I believe this is so important. To me, this is bigger than an administration, and, and I'll go on record as saying both administrations use this tactic. Uh, politicians, they're known for doing this, for taking words and saying it doesn't mean what you think it means. That word does not mean what you think it means. Or when I use that word, I didn't mean what everyone agrees that it actually means. It's different than that. Yeah, this is not about politicians. It is, however, about the fact that if we do not hold those who speak words and communicate messages to agreed upon standards, then anything can be said, anything can be done, anything can be called truth, and when anything can be called truth, then nothing is true. If we don't know what is true, then how can we hold our politicians to any kind of a standard? How will we know who to elect and who to kindly ask to move on? If words no longer have meaning, what will our textbooks in elementary and high school look like? This is a debate taking place around, uh, across the country and around the world right now. Uh, biology textbooks, science textbooks. How do we even write these anymore when we're manipulating, we're changing the words to mean something they never met, meant before? When everything is true, then nothing is true. In relationships, if we can speak to our spouse or our significant other, we can say a word that has an agreed-upon meaning, but when they push back or don't like it, we can say we meant something else. The word we used is not really the word we intended to use. It's not the meaning uh, we were trying to express. When everything is true, then nothing is true. We have no foundation on which to build a meaningful, trusting relationship. As a Christian, this is something I worry about often. Because even amongst Christians, the words in our Holy Scripture, the Bible, are being changed to agree with a culture that is always changing. There is no fixed or set definition. And so those who don't like what the Bible can say, uh, says can just redefine what those words mean, redefine it to fit their own image. We've seen how that turns out. <laughs> we have legal arguments right now taking place over the words of the Constitution. We're redefining words, words that have an established meaning, an established definition. Certainly at the time they were written, had an established definition and meaning. We're looking at those words, and we're redefining what they mean to fit our personal agenda, or more accurately, to fit how we think they should make us feel, or how they actually do make us feel. Because we're not as worried about truth, we're more concerned about how we feel about what's being said. And if we don't come to the place where we hold those who are communicating through the written word, in popular media, the spoken word, speeches, and so forth, if we're not holding them to the standard of what those words mean, then we have no standard at all. This, to me, is an extremely, extremely important conversation for us to have and an important focus for us to regain. 
Why do you feel so confused when you get on social media, when you hear a politician say something, when friends who you've trusted for years and listened to for years are now saying things that don't make sense? We get on social media, we see what's posted, it just doesn't connect, we can't figure it out. Why are we all so confused? Because the common definitions of words that are the foundation for our societies, our cultures, and our way of thinking are so freely and so easily being manipulated, being changed to fit the narrative of those who are speaking them to us. We must regain the high ground, hold to definitions, and hold accountable those who speak these words to us. Remember, when everything's true, then nothing is true, and we've got to get back to a place of truth. Truth exists, and we must stop those who are doing their best to manipulate that truth into their own image from taking the rest of us with them. I hope that's a helpful thought to you. It should be one that you spend a lot of time not only thinking about, but correcting in your daily life. You see, as you speak, use the words you intend to use, use the definitions those words have, and hold to that. Be a truth speaker. The people in your life, hold them to the standard of the definitions of those words that are commonly accepted. Hold them to the truth of their words. And the politicians, others who speak to us, don't let them get away with redefining what we've always known to be true. We are living in an ever-changing culture. And so much of what's changing in culture is being driven by the changing of words. But remember, words have meaning. Words have definition. Let's hold to those definitions. Again, I hope that's a helpful thought to you. Share this content out with those uh, that may need to understand why things are just so confusing. (laughs) Because when words don't mean anything, everything gets confusing. You ever talk to a toddler? That's exactly what's happening. We're being talked to like we're toddlers. And it gets really, really confusing. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please go ahead and do that. Wherever you are listening, make sure that you are subscribed. Go over to YouTube, find our channel, The Situation Report. You can find this and other content there. We'd love to share that with you, share that out with others, and uh, leave us a comment. would be fantastic. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. We will talk to you next time. Many of you know that my day job is working for an organization called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. I've had the opportunity to work with the Mighty Oaks Foundation for a little over 10 years now and very grateful for that opportunity. I served in the United States Marine Corps and left in 2003. When I came back from Iraq and got out of the Marine Corps, I transitioned and had some of the same struggles that many of our veterans today have. Uh, That transition time can be very, very difficult. I moved on with the help and support of my family and others in my close-knit community and really, in many ways, tried to walk away from my service. It was too hard, too difficult for me to look back, to remember, to stay connected, and so I chose not to. About 10 years after I walked away, I was reconnected with many of the men that I had served with in Iraq and even before that Iraq deployment and came to understand that so many of the men that I served with did not do well. 
I came home and I struggled, but I had a family around me and I had a community around me that helped me to get back on my feet and continue moving forward. So many of those that I had served with, however, did not have the same opportunity. They came home and didn't have that family around them, that community that could lift them up. And so they made some decisions, decisions that we talk about often in the veteran community. I was reminded about 10 years after my service that some of the men that I served with in Iraq came home and struggled and decided that it would be best for them to end their lives. Others who had not taken their lives, but who had struggled from one relationship to the next, from one job to another, and had never really gotten back on their feet. I learned after 10 years that walking away from my military service was not really an option. (laughs) You see, we think we can hang our uniform in the closet for the last time and walk away, but our obligation to those that we served with remains. It was at that time that I had the opportunity to get connected to the Mighty Oaks Foundation. It was just getting started. I met our founder, Chad Robichaux, and together we began to work on what is today a national nonprofit serving veterans active duty service members, and more and more, the first responders in our community. That's what we do. You see, Chad served in the Marine Corps as well, and both of us have an understanding, and so many of the folks, many, many folks that work with us now who served in the military and in the first responder community understand that we may get out, we may hang the uniform up, but we still have an obligation to care for those who have served or are serving. That's exactly what we do at the Mighty Oaks Foundation every single day. We run programs across the country for those who have served, veterans, or are serving, active duty service members, those who are serving in their community as first responders, police officers and firefighters, and others in that first responder community. We serve them by helping them to understand that there is life beyond their service, that their identity should be wrapped up in more than a uniform or a job that they've done or are doing, that there is a purpose, that there is a plan. In fact, that God, the creator, has something he intends for them. And that if they'll simply align their lives to the life that he has for them, so much of the trauma, so much of the difficulty, so much of their past, so many of those things that have a hold on them, they may not go away, but they won't maintain the hold and the control. Here's the message we try to convey and communicate. There is hope. And there is a community of people found within the Mighty Oaks Foundation that understand where you've been because we've been there. We don't have it all figured out. We're certainly not perfect, but we've taken some steps to move forward and we want to take you with us. That's what we do. How do we do that? Again, by communicating the fact that there is hope, by connecting with others who've been there and know how to move forward and by getting around you and supporting you as you begin to take those very important steps yourself. The Mighty Oaks Foundation is blessed to have supporters across the country that make it possible for us to do the work that we do at no cost to the veteran, the active duty service member, or the first responder. For you to attend our program, you simply need to set aside five days and come to one of our locations, one of our facilities. We'll do the rest. There will be no cost to you for the program, no cost for the transportation to get you to the program. We do all the planning and all the logistics. You simply need to get there. We want to remove every obstacle for you to get the help, the encouragement, the strengthening, (laughs) the hope, the renewal that you need. We're thankful for the opportunity to do that. 
Perhaps you are not a veteran or a service member. You're not in the first responder community, but you care about those who have served and are serving our communities. Well, you may fall into the other category then. Perhaps you're someone that can support what we do financially to make it possible for those folks to come along. Maybe your support is not financial support, but you know someone in your community, in your town, in your church, uh, in a club, or something else that you're a part of that could use this kind of support and encouragement. Plug them in. Let us help them. Let us get them on the road. No cost to them. We want to do the work, but we need you to get them to us. That was a lot of words. If you listen to the show, you know I say a lot of words sometimes. So let me point you to the one place where you can get all your questions answered. MightyOaksPrograms.org is our website. MightyOaksPrograms.org. There you will find more information about what we do as an organization. There's an application for those who would like to apply. Fill that application out. Our team will get back to you. Set everything else up. If you would like to support the work of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, you'll find a place to do that there as well. And there is also a section for resources. So many of you know people who need help but may not start by coming to a program, attending a program, but they would read a book, they would watch a video, they would listen to a testimony. We have those resources there for you as well. So please come and join us at the Mighty Oaks Foundation's website, mightyoaksprograms.org. Our veterans, active duty members, and first responders need our support. Maybe you're in that category. You need our support. And that begins by going to the Mighty Oaks Programs website, mightyoaksprograms.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.